My mother used to tell me tales, I'm sure they were true because she would not lie to me, about people and things they would ask someone to do to prove their love for them. If you ever saw the John Wayne movie McClintock, how many of you know who John Wayne was? My grandchildren are going to have to be instructed. John Wayne was the American movie actor. He was in a movie called McClintock, and his son Patrick Wayne played it as well as um, uh, Stephanie Powers played John Wayne's daughter in the movie. And she came into the room. She was all upset and angry, and she said to him, shoot him, said to her daddy, shoot him, which is Patrick Wayne. And he said, why? And uh, she said that she had been impugned by him. And John Wayne said, what does that mean? And so it goes through, and she finally says, if you're my father and you love me, you will shoot him. So John Wayne has this beautiful cabinet full of these beautiful guns, and he opens it up and says, well, I am your father, and I do love you. So when he gets the gun out, and he shoots Patrick Wayne. And she goes crazy. She had no idea he was going to do this. And she said, if he dies, he said, if he dies, he'll be the only person to ever die from a blank. They use that gun for starting races and whatnot. So it was not a bullet that came out of the end of that gun. It was a brother paper, perhaps, and some burnt gunpowder. We have, in our own day and age, people full of insecurities about whether or not they're loved, for one thing or another. And they are often asking people to demonstrate their love for them. And it's a, it's a terrible uh, way to, to live. And yet it is there on many occasions. Do you love me? Well, here's a question for all of you. Hear me? Have you ever questioned God's love for you? Have you ever done that? Do you have this prayer that perhaps you pray quietly, if you love me, why did you take my parent? If you love me, why did you afflict me with cancer? If you love me, why didn't you give me that promotion? And your problem is, why didn't you do these things for me? Well, here's a question, another question. What else can God do to show you that he loves you? What more can he do to demonstrate his love for his people? We can't ask God to jump through hoops to show that he loves us. We just can't do that. Because he has demonstrated his love to the nth degree for us. And to question his love is a gross sin. For God's people to question whether or not he loves them is insulting to God. And it is indeed a gross sin. Well, what is taught here in these few verses of Romans 5 should assuage all doubts concerning God's love for you. God's love for his people. God's love for his church. In verses 1 through 5, he talks about being justified by faith. Because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, Our thoughts of God, so far as the future is concerned, should be filled with hope and confidence. God does not lie. Uh, Because God has done what he's done for us in Christ, we triumph in trouble and difficulties. Nothing can keep us from experiencing the pleasures God has in store for us, 
and the great grace God has in store for us and gives to us each and every day. He will not disappoint. That's not to say that everything that happens to us is going to be absolutely something that we delight in. It's not going to be that way. You remember what Jesus said, I quote this again and again, in this world you will have trouble. It's a common part of living in a fallen world. You will have trouble. You will have difficulties. You will have things that disappoint you. You will have things that break your heart. That does not mean that God does not love you. We must let God be God always, and we cannot in any way seek to impose our own desires upon him when our desires conflict with his own. You'll drive yourself crazy and make yourself miserable the rest of your life. And he says he has poured out his spirit upon us. And then we say, well, how can all this be true? This just simply sounds too good that there's a God in heaven who loves me more than I ever think or imagine. Well, we look to what he said here in this text, because God has expressed his boundless love for us by giving us his son to secure us to himself, to grant to us redemption and salvation, not simply for today, but the fullness of it in eternity. We can rest assured that God loves us always. We can rest assured that God loves us always. Every moment that you live, every breath that you take, every move that you make, He's watching us. And three things this morning. God's love for his people is expressed in a timely manner. God's love for his people is expressed in a merciful manner. And then finally, in a marvelous manner. Let me tell you now, we're not getting out of here at 12 o'clock. It's not going to happen. It's a quarter to 12, maybe. We're not going to get out at 12. I got started a little late. Y'all can bear with me. So God's love for his people is expressed in a timely manner. First notice uh, the helplessness of the fallen race to make itself good to go with God. For while we were still weak, and yet at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So we have then the helplessness of the fallen race to do anything that can make us acceptable to God. There's nothing that we can do. The language here, he says, uh, we were ungodly. I mean, he's talking to the church here. He's not talking to a bunch of pagans that haven't been converted. He's talking to God's people. While we were yet ungodly. What does it mean then when he says that we were ungodly? Well, it does not mean that we were as wicked as we possibly could be. It doesn't mean that you couldn't do good things. It does not mean you can't be a good father. And raising your children and uh, loving your children, those types of things. It doesn't mean you can't do that. It doesn't mean that you're all uh, um, Saddam Hussein's and the butcher of Baghdad. It doesn't mean you're all little Adolf Hitler's. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is that you were at one time in your life without God. You had no faith in Christ. Unless you were, by God's grace, converted in the womb, which we know that does happen. When you were... Living your life apart from faith, you are indeed without God in the world, without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Without faith in Christ, your life is characterized by wickedness. Without faith in Christ, your life is characterized by wickedness. People don't like to hear that. People don't want to hear that. They think I'm a pretty good Joe. I'm a pretty good guy. 
You know, I don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I'm, I'm not a bad person. Well, we read in the scriptures, it tells us there that our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. So apart from Christ, you are characterized by wickedness. You are ungodly without God in the world. And as Ephesians 2.12 puts it, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it means to be ungodly, to be without God, to be one who lives your life without any idea of worshiping the one living and true God. Powerless condition in that fallen, uh, in our fallen uh, condition. Powerless to do anything about it. Paul used the word weak here while we were still weak. It means to be without strength. It means to be impotent. It means that as far as it is up to you to make yourself acceptable to God, you are absolutely helpless to do anything. You know, and we, we, we hear that. Oh, he's going to tell us that again today. We know that. Do you really? Do you really? Has it really gripped your heart? And that you understand it is all of his grace and his grace and his love and his mercy. Because when we fail to comprehend that it is without Christ, we're ungodly. Without Christ, we have no hope. And it is all of God's grace and all of his kindness that brings us into that relationship. So don't get weary of hearing that. We should remind ourselves that we are debtors to grace every day and praise God for it. We were flatlined spiritually, so to speak. Well, secondly, then, notice the perfect timing of this work. Paul tells us at the right time, at the exact moment, uh, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's spoken of this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That indicates the close relationship that we have with God. See, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through the Lord Jesus Christ. At the exact predestined moment, at the time determined in eternity past, Christ came to redeem us. So our salvation was planned in eternity past. It was that in eternity past, God the Father chose a people. God the Son agreed to redeem those people by his life and death and resurrection. And God the Holy Spirit then applied that work of redemption to his people. So at the exact predestined precise moment, Christ was born. Not a millisecond too soon, not a millisecond too late. And even in the Old Testament, the town was predicted, foretold where he would be born. So then, at the exact moment, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon, and I would encourage you to listen to his sermon on this. If you haven't heard Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preach this, it's worthwhile hearing. I did not listen to Alistair Begg. Didn't have time. We kind of got away somehow. But um, 
I did listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was absolutely superb on this. He said there are no afterthoughts with God. And so that it's not to be considered that when the fall took place, God had to go to a plan B. No, it was from eternity that it was determined the fall would take place, although God's not to blame for that. Uh, he's not tempted anyone to sin. We are to blame for that. Adam and Eve are to blame for that, not God at all. And before the creation of the cosmos, before the advent of Christ, it was determined not simply who would redeem and how he would redeem, but who would be saved. You think about that. Before you ever were, before the world ever was, God said this. Within the council of the Godhead, I'm going to save Mark Elam. He's going to be represented on the cross. I'm going to save uh, Kirk Coppice. He was represented there on the cross. And you can say that about yourself, that God's love for me is so profound and so deep that before I was ever conceived, before the world was ever created, God had determined to set his mark upon me and claim me for his own child. Well, the second thing is uh, not uh, that God's love for his people is expressed in a merciful manner. As I said, we were sinful, hapless, hopeless people that could do nothing to save themselves, but God determined to save us. And that was the grand work of Jesus Christ. God's great work through his son that redeemed us. How Christ died for the ungodly. Listen to this. It was the eternal son of God that made it possible for those who have no righteousness at all. And in fact, the wicked of the world who by nature hated God and hated Christ with a passion by giving him his life for their sakes on the cross of Calvary. That's the gospel. And that ought to thrill you as you think about that. It should thrill you. The great substitutor, that is a real word, I looked it up. The great substitutor died a sinner's death for true sinners. Now, you misunderstand the gospel if you think Christ became a sinner. He never became a sinner. He was the sin bearer. He died for the ungodly. Colossians 1, 21, 23. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body uh, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. By his life, by his death, by his resurrection, and by God's grace, by the application of that to your life, you have certainty. By his stripes we are healed. You have the confidence that when you, lie, when you leave here, you're going to go and be with Christ in the company of the redeemed. Great text in Hebrews, the souls of men made perfect. Now that's where you're going. And I said some years ago, and I, re I read somewhere as a quote, 
Death has become the servant of the Christian. Because all it does is transport us at that time from this world into glory. How extraordinary, as you think about this, that Christ gave up his life. How extraordinary. And so now we can, and this is one of the verses you were supposed to memorize. And Jesus is talking in the grave of Lazarus. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In er- yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then, you know, he asked the question, do you believe this? I love that. I love you put that in there. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Uh, is, is your faith uh, uh, something that is ethereal, something that is, is basically um, uh, uh, theoretical? And uh, it, it really doesn't impact your life. It really doesn't formulate your thinking so far as how you view the world, the Christian world and life view. And you look at life and you view the world as if there is no Christ at all. Do you believe this? Christ had a reason for asking this. Do you believe this? That we have, by God's grace, defeated sin and death because Christ has defeated sin and death for us. And again, people extraordinarily in Christ giving up his life, people naturally like to cling to death. If you're threatened, what do you do? If your life is threatened, what do you do? A real threat. Most of you know I was in a holdup when I was out here doing the internship with Dr. Piper. Jonathan was six months old. I had him in my arms and ordering donuts for the pastor's meeting that Monday. And uh, there was a ruckus and there was a guy behind the counter waving a pistol around, telling him to open up the register. And there was a guy by my left side pointing a gun at my kidney. Now, if my mind had been hooked up to the computer, it would have short-circuited the computers. I'm thinking all kind of things. I thought they were going to try to take Jonathan. What am I going to do if they do that? I'm not going to let them. But the guy holding the gun on me, by God's grace, said, we're not going to hurt you. I said, thank you. It was somewhat reassuring uh, when he said that. Extraordinary. People like to cling to life. That's the way we're wired. Have you ever been hunting? Well, if you haven't ever been hunting, you're not going to know what I'm talking about. You shoot at an animal. It doesn't sit there and wait for you to shoot at it again. It runs away. It wants to live. If you catch a fish and drop it on the bank, that fish is doing all it can do to get back into the water. It wants to live. So it's something that God has put in us that by nature we do want to live. It's an innate desire that we have. And yet Paul demonstrates in these verses how remarkable it was that Christ died as he did for us. There's a comparison here. Someone might scarcely die for a righteous person. That might happen, he's saying there. That might happen that someone that someone of honor, someone that is noble, someone uh, might possibly die for him, someone who has integrity. Then he goes on beyond that. He says, even for a good person, someone may perhaps die. And the difference is this. This is someone that you know to be kind and loving, gentle. That's the way they are. And he says, perhaps someone would even die for a good person, though it would be a rare thing if they did. A person who is gentle, a person who is compassionate. 
Perhaps for this person, one would even dare to die. But, here's the contrast. Don't let this slip past you. Christ dying for us while we were yet sinners. While we were God's enemies. While we were haters of God, haters of righteousness, haters of the church. While we were lost and unable to do anything to change that situation, Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, how this should encourage us to do all that we possibly can do to love our great God and to seek to obey him in all things. Christ died for the ungodly. Not for good people. Not for righteous people. Not for kind people, but people who by nature hated God. Those are the ones he died for on the cross of Calvary. And can't you see it? And God so loved the world in its lost condition. God so loved the world in its rebellion. God so loved the world in its vileness. In its murder, in its adultery, in its idolatry, that Christ was given to die for us, to take our guilt and condemnation upon himself on the cross of Calvary, that we, by God's grace, might be declared not guilty. Not guilty. And the mystery of it all is after we are converted, After we come to Christ, we still have a heart that is given to rebellion against God. Yet by His grace, we come to repentance. But we do not obey as we should obey. What's the goal? What's the, the, uh, the mandate? You are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And what moved all of this, what motivated all of this, what set all of this in motion... Is God's love. But God shows his love for us. And that while we be yet sinners, Christ died for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his sermon on this text said this. These verses in Romans are Paul's commentary on John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is God's love, you see. That is the reason you're here today. It is God's love is the reason that you are a part of the body of Christ. It's God's love behind the very work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Oh, it says in Ephesians, oh, the depth. And the riches, how unsearchable are God's ways, His love for us beyond understanding, beyond knowing, beyond comprehending the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of God shown to us in Christ Jesus. And by that great grace of love and that great grace of mercy, we were enemies and God redeemed us and determined to redeem us while we were without Christ and without hope in the world. 
the catalyst that brought all this about was God's deep love for the Christian. Anyone who is saved, anyone who is a believer would have to say, how amazing is God's love for me? Don't say the church. Say for me. Personalize it for me. How great, how amazing is God's love for me? How can we not love him back? How can we not say, well, if you love me, you'll give me this position. If you love me, you will, you will make this person well. If you love me, you will be at my beck and call and basically be nothing more than a genie in a bottle where my wish is his command. And you see, he saved us from the wrath to come. The wrath of God, we come in against the ungodly one day. We read that in the scriptures. There is a final judgment on that day. There's going to be a great uh, uh, chastisement, if you will. A great uh, uh, outpouring of God's wrath, if you will. But you'll escape it. Because God loves you. That's why. Because God loves you. John Calvin said this, If God had mercy on the wicked much more easily, will he keep those restored to his favor? He will indeed keep us close. He will indeed save us from the wrath to come. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, There's nothing to give greater assurance of the certainty of our salvation than the very love of God. Read it again. Nothing can give us greater assurance of the certainty of our salvation than the love of God. And so when we are living our lives, we recognize that our hearts perhaps have grown cold toward God. Our interest in the gospel perhaps is not what it was at one time. And perhaps we've gone through a providence where we grumbled against God even. What sustains us? And not your determination. We have a responsibility to trust and be obedient. But it is God's love for us that sustains us. Again, nothing can give greater assurance of the certainty of our salvation than the very love of God. So I ask you, as I asked at the beginning, what else can God do to show you that he loves you? What else can he do? He has spared you. If you're here today and you're trusting Christ for your salvation, He has spared you the pains of condemnation and hell. Not simply that. The positive thing is, He's given us a place in glory. He's given us a place in heaven. And it says in the Scriptures, He will wipe away every tear. Paul says, The misery of this life do not compare to the glory that shall be revealed in us in that day. Do you know Christ? Are you converted? If you're not, I would urge you to come to this God who's loving and merciful and kind always. And when we are disappointed, there are his words of comfort to us. And there as well is his spirit dwelling within us to give us a sense of peace. What do you have to do? Believe him.
have to believe him. Remember that verse in Habakkuk 2 and verse 4? As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. As Dr. Roberts used to put it, the justified by faith shall live by faith. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these great words of encouragement to us as your people. We pray, our Lord, that we would not measure your love for us by circumstances. We pray for the grace to see the blessings you give to us. May we not be blind to those great blessings and rejoice before you in that fact. But as the storms of life come upon us, O oh Lord, we pray that we would remember that your love was displayed very clearly and very definitely in the work of Christ for our sakes. O oh Lord, may we love you. May we trust you. Give us the grace to do that. And may we, O oh God, seek to please you. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. May we delight in doing that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.